This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, it's time for an update on Sub-Saharan Africa. We focus this week on the implications of the military coups in Guinea and Mali, continued turmoil and terrorism in West Africa, and prospects for hopeful trends emanating from Zambia and Nigeria. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. First, the bad news. A military takeover in early September in Guinea-Conakry is the latest in a disturbing trend toward the undermining of democratic governance in West Africa. The overthrow of Guinea's President Alpha Conde was preceded by not one, but two coups in neighboring Mali. In his address to the UN General Assembly last week, Ghanaian President Nana Akufo-Addo, who is also chair of the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, said the world has witnessed an assault on democracy in the last two years, even in developed countries, where it has been assumed that the democratic form of governance was standard. Regarding Mali, Daniel Paquet and Nick Nowak of the Washington Post reported in an article on August 29th that the U.S. withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and France's drawdown in Mali have emboldened the very al-Qaeda-linked jihadist groups that the counter-terrorism forces were sent to quell. Now for some good news, Zambia held an election with historic voter turnout, especially among the youth, which ensured a peaceful transition of power. And Nigeria is approaching the anniversary of successful protests, which succeeded in the disbandment of the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, also known as SARS, a police unit infamous for its abuses of human rights, including extrajudicial killings. Well, joining us to analyze it all are Joshua Meservi, Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation, a think tank based in Washington, and Oge Onobogu, Director of the West Africa Program at the Washington-based U.S. Institute of Peace, where she leads programming in Nigeria, coastal West Africa, Lake Chad Basin, and the Gulf of Guinea. Both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to you both. Actually, I want both of you to talk about what you've been hearing from African heads of state and government at the UNGA regarding their primary concerns, such as backsliding in democracy as evidenced by the coups in Guinea and Mali and the attempted coup in Sudan, the need for more COVID vaccines from the West and investment. So Joshua, let me begin with you. What's your takeaway? Yeah, I think you hit the two really big themes that we've been hearing from African leaders at UNGA. The democratic backsliding, most obviously demonstrated by the coups that you referenced in the run-up. That's clearly on a lot of African leaders' minds. I always say somewhat facetiously, but I think there's a kernel of truth to it that the one extra constitutional activity that will get all African leaders greatly concerned and on their bully pulpits is a coup because none of them want to face the same fate. So we've certainly seen that the regional bloc ECOWAS in West Africa has very strongly condemned the coups both in Mali and the more recent one in Guinea and has suspended membership of those countries and also has even imposed sanctions. And again, the other one you mentioned, COVID, this remains a front of mind problem for a lot of African rulers, as it should be. 
the vaccination rates are terribly low all across the continent. There's a few countries that have done a little bit better. And there's clearly a lot of frustration among African rulers as they look around the world and see that there are sufficient vaccine supplies in a number of developed countries, including here in the United States, but they themselves are struggling to get enough. But I will say, I think some of the rhetoric from African leaders around the COVID vaccination problems is fair, but I also think there's some governance problems in their own countries that are also partially responsible for this state of affairs. Well, thank you, Joshua. Now I'd like to turn to Oge Onobogu for your take on what you're hearing from African leaders, and do you think their messages will be heeded? Thank you very much, Carol. And I think just to add on to some of the points that Joshua has made, I think we are hearing those concerns from African leaders about democracy backsliding in the region, but also a call for more partnership to work together towards trying to address the causes of some of these actions or concerns that we see in the region. Of course, democracy, we've seen signs of democracy backsliding on the continent, but notwithstanding, not only on the continent, but elsewhere. So what we're hearing from at least some of the statements that have come through have been one of more There is a problem. We acknowledge that there is an issue. How do we work together as partners to address these concerns? Obviously, to the point about governance, as Joshua has raised, governance issues cut across the board in a lot of these countries and really trying to understand how government actors, their actions or their inactions towards some of these incidents may also be driving some of the trends in democratic backsliding that we see on the continent. So the statements we've been hearing, at least from the different uh, heads of states, have been one of concern, but also one of trying to think about how we use the opportunities that exist to ensure that there's true partnership and that African nations can work together with the U.S. and other international actors to address the drivers of a lot of these concerns that we see in the different countries. Well, speaking of drivers of concerns and causes, let's turn now to the recent coup in Guinea-Conakry, Joshua. What is the state of play and what does this recent overthrow of Alpha Conde, which prompted, as you said, ECOWAS to suspend Guinea from the regional bloc, impose travel bans and only give the junta a six-month timeline within which to hold presidential and legislative elections, signify for Guinea and the region. So much of this is ongoing as we speak, so it's very difficult to draw any final conclusions, that's for sure. I find the Guinea coup really interesting. So clearly it was just a grab for power, as all coups are, by the military. But they said that this was in reaction to the anti-democratic actions that Alpha Conde himself had taken. And there is truth to that. Alpha Conde did really restrict the democratic space. He won two elections, both of which which were plagued by irregularities and violence that followed them oftentimes. That was in 2010 and 2015. And then he pulled what has become sort of a classic maneuver over the last decade or so, where he then amended the Constitution to allow himself to stand for a third term, which he then subsequently won. So this is interesting to me because a coup is a very obvious anti-democratic maneuver. 
And that's sort of traditionally what we've seen on the continent. But there's this more recent trend that Conde exemplifies of rulers extending their stay in power by fiddling with the constitutions themselves. That has been the more recent trend, I would say, although over the last year or so, we've suddenly seen this brush fire of coups. So I'm very skeptical when coup leaders say that they're going to return power to the people. I think fundamentally what is behind coups is a lust for power by the people who have launched them. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't foresee this really putting Guinea back on the path to democracy. Turning to you, Oge Onobogo, the Guinea coup is really interesting insofar as you had many Guineans actually celebrating the coup in the streets, at least initially, citing some of the very grievances that Joshua alluded to with respect to authoritarian tendencies of Alpha Conde. What do you make of this? What does it mean for Guinea as well as for coastal states like Ghana, Benin, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo, which are all affected by political instability and even terrorism from neighbors like Guinea and Mali. Thank you very much, Carol. First of all, I want to say that there is never a good coup. And even though the coup in Guinea was welcomed by a lot of enthusiasm by several citizens, that enthusiasm, as history has shown us, will be short-lived. Now, it's important for us to look at the broader context within which this coup has occurred. This coup in Guinea is really coming on the heels of other coups that we've seen in West Africa in less than two years. We've seen two coups in Mali. We've seen a coup-like event happen in Niger. On the Central African side, we also saw the coup in Chad. So basically, we've had all these different attempts happen under two years. So obviously, it doesn't look well for democracy in the region. It is one that is very concerning and really calls to the forefront, the role of the regional bodies. So ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States and the AU, and calling on them to take a more proactive stance and a more proactive role in how they address these issues. Because a lot of the issues that were leading up to the coup in Guinea were predictable and they could have been prevented. But there were no proactive steps taken. When Alpha Conde adjusted the constitution to allow him run for office, to allow him move forward with a referendum that gave him an extra term in office, ECOWAS, the main regional body in the region, didn't speak up. AU didn't speak up at that time. So now you have citizens that may be questioning the credibility of ECOWAS and the AU to now speak up with the military in office, with the military now taking over power in Guinea. These are still early days of the conversations, and we will expect to hear more in the coming days. We know that there were recent meetings between the president of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire just recently in Guinea that met with the head of the junta over there. But again, it really brings to the forefront the larger question of the roles of democratic institutions and when and how they should play their roles to ensure that individuals who are elected into office are able to respect the constitutions of their country and respect the will of the citizens. So I think this entire incident, as it's still unfolding, 
we will see some of the steps that ECOWAS might take. We will also see some of the steps that the AU will take. I know that there are conversations ongoing now about looking at how you transition from a military to a civilian rule and looking at the way that citizens actually welcomed the coup in Guinea. Again, it brings to the forefront the larger questions and larger discussions that we should be having about the role of regional institutions, the role of democratic institutions, and the fact that these institutions have to try to push for legitimacy. Yes, and try to prevent the coups from taking place to begin with. You are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. And joining me via Microsoft Teams are Joshua Mazurvi, Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation, and Oge Onubogu, from whom you just heard. She's Director of the West Africa Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And this is our periodic update on Africa, focusing this week on several coup attempts, terrorism threats in West Africa, and some glints of optimism in Zambia and Nigeria. Well, this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Kamara Osmantayo from Freetown, Sierra Leone. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page or you may also send a good old-fashioned email. Well, back to our conversation, and over to you, Joshua Mazurvi, to discuss the ramifications of the U.S. precipitous troop withdrawal from Afghanistan and, of course, the return of the Taliban, as well as the French drawdown of about 5,000 troops and ending of what was called Operation Barkhan, whose mission was to help eradicate al-Qaeda and other extremist groups who began to flourish when separatists in Mali's north, who we have to say had some legitimate grievances, forged a shaky partnership with al-Qaeda in 2012. And of course, just as the United States, France is facing domestic pressure to withdraw its troops, but the mission has yet to be accomplished. What is the state of play, Joshua, in Mali with regard to this drawdown? We saw, as you both referenced, two coups in the country. It's very unstable. What are the implications of the drawdown of the French troops? So I think the instability in Mali within the government, as evidenced by these two coups, is actually relevant to the French drawdown. That drawdown came in large part because of real frustration by the French government with their partners in the region, with whom they have been working for years now fighting terrorism in the Sahel. And of course, Mali is right in the middle of that. French President Macron has publicly made remarks about how their partners there needed to do more. And that has always been the Achilles heel of counterterrorism operations in the Sahel and Afghanistan, which you mentioned in the question, and Iraq, Somalia, you could choose a whole host of examples here of foreign powers trying to fight terrorism in the context of local governments that are frequently deeply corrupt. Their armed forces can be very brutal. All that's really counterproductive to fighting terrorism. So the Barkhane withdrawal is not a total withdrawal of French troops. The French are messaging this as somewhat of a reorientation of their efforts in the region. 
We'll have to wait and see exactly what that looks like. But there is real reason to be concerned that this is going to lead to even more terrorist incidents in the region because really since for about the last five or six years, there's no region on Earth that has experienced a greater growth in terrorist incidents than the Sahel. There's been an absolute explosion of this sort of violence. I saw one statistic that said in the last five or so years, there's been actually a 16-fold increase in violent terrorist events in the Sahel. So that gives you a sense of just how dramatically this problem is growing. And then the French really have been doing the heavy lifting there as far as military strikes. But as we have yet to learn, but we're being taught over and over again, these military activities, they are absolutely a part of fighting terrorism, but they're not sufficient. You need competent local government partners who can deliver a basic level of security themselves and services to their people to give those people a reason to repudiate terrorist activity in their midst. Well, turning to you, Oge Onobogu, to amplify your concerns about what is going on in Mali, the fact that, for example, the Taliban had victims in Afghanistan and how this has emboldened Al-Qaeda, AQIM in the region. And now you have the French drawing down, not that they're a silver bullet by any means. Just as Joshua said, we're seeing local partners not stepping up. How can the region and international players help eliminate the very grievances that seem to continue to animate Al-Qaeda affiliates and prevent political stability? Thank you very much, Carol. As you rightfully pointed out, there are a lot of grievances in the country that are driving a lot of these violent extremist groups that we see. And I think when we think about how international actors or friends of Mali react to this situation, this is a time to really going back to the drawing board and trying to review all the different actions and responses and ensuring that there's proper coordination and collaboration amongst all the different responses internationally national or local responses that are happening in the country. Also turning to the voices of local individuals as well, because at the end of the day, while there are security concerns, a military solution or military solutions are not a silver bullet, as you rightfully said. There are other issues that are driving these grievances and fueling these violent extremist groups and ensuring that we engage the voices of local actors in a lot of the decision making that might be happening at the national level or at the state level that is disconnected from the people on the ground, making sure that those local voices are engaged in the decision-making process. And as I said, military response, a core security response is not a silver bullet because while you actually had ongoing security responses to violent extremist movements in the region, you had a coup happen. So it basically begs the question that there are larger issues of governance. There are larger larger issues of citizen grievances that have not been addressed. So trying to ensure that we go back to the drawing board, international actors and friends of Mali, review our different responses, think about how we properly coordinate and collaborate our actions, and most importantly, ensure that the local voices are engaged in the decision-making process. Well, I hate to give short shrift to the good news on the continent, but we are running out of time. Let me turn back to you, Joshua, with respect to Zambia, a peaceful transfer of power. What does that signify? Can that trend somehow at some point overtake what we're seeing with respect to coups in West Africa? Zambia was genuinely a great 
news story. I was very concerned going into these elections. There was a lot of negative trends. Zambia historically has been a very peaceful place. Politically, very, very little history of violence. I lived there when a president died in office. It was a very tense time, but it was handled very peacefully. And so Zambians have always deserved a lot of credit for being committed to peaceful political activity. That had started to fray over the last few years. There had been some violence, even resulting in death. And the president, who was just defeated, I will give him credit for peacefully leaving office and actually giving a very gracious concession speech. Those moments are hugely important for solidifying democracy, despite some of the very worrisome activities that happened under his watch and that he was directly responsible for. The man who beat him, he's known colloquially there as H.H., Hakenda Hichilema. He was actually arrested uh, the last go-around for treason by the Edgar Lungu government, the president who was just defeated. So there was all these negative, worrisome signs, but then, again, it was a peaceful election, and H.H. won in electoral terms almost by a landslide. It was a very convincing victory. It was done peacefully. H.H. is widely respected. He's regarded as a pragmatist. He's a businessman. And that country is in serious economic turmoil. And so it is going to require every ounce of HH's great acumen and political instincts and wisdom to help the country. But yes, a very encouraging political moment in Southern Africa, which follows one, I want to mention Malawi, which also had a peaceful transfer of power somewhat unexpectedly when the judiciary acted independently and its ruling was respected. So those two countries border each other. So a great couple years here for Southern Africa. Well, let me turn now to Oge Onobogo for the last word. And based on your Nigerian heritage, Oge, uh, I will let you speak to Nigeria. I know you are proud of this movement that, you know, helped to defeat this special anti-robbery squad in Nigeria. So uh, feel free to please comment on that and its significance, the role of youth, and also the role of youth and what lessons we can learn from the Zambian transfer of power, anything that perhaps West Africa could take from that. Thank you very much, Carol. And just to uh, chime in a little bit on Zambia before I move on to Nigeria, actually at USIP, we had an opportunity to host President Hechelima for a public conversation. And, you know, for an individual that has tried six times to become president and win the elections by a landslide, and we see a peaceful transfer of power, that in itself is an example that not only countries on the continent could follow, but countries elsewhere elsewhere as well that are looking towards peaceful democratic transitions of power in their own different countries. I think it also shows the importance of governance, given that also in Southern Africa, just next to Zambia, we see Mozambique and some of the issues that are happening in the Cabo Delgado region when it comes to violent extremism and the role that good governance can play in a lot of these conversations, having different actors or different states or countries within the region that are able to stand up to violent extremist movements. So in many ways, what we saw happen in Zambia was really the voices of youth too as well. We saw really incredible youth 
participation in the political process. And across the continent, we're beginning to see a lot of young people really becoming more aware of the situations and understanding what democracy should be and realizing that the way democracy is practiced in some countries isn't what democracy should be and that the promise of democracy has not been delivering. And so pulls us to Nigeria, where in October of last year, we saw the NSARS movement where young people basically banded together to protest against violent and corrupt police security outfits called SARS. And while their protests were able to push the disbandment of that police unit, it also inspired other youth voices across West Africa. So we saw protests in places like Senegal. It inspired certain protests and it also informed some of these youth protests as well. And young voices that are standing up to challenge some governments where they feel that governments that have not been delivering on the promise of democracy. One opportunity there is where we as those who work in these countries and partner with governments or civil society groups in these countries, how do we work with young voices to ensure that these movements do not become violent? Nigeria really is the powerhouse of West Africa. It's a behemoth on the continent on its own, 200 million people. And one in every seven Black people on this continent is Nigerian or of Nigerian descent. So when we think about our engagement on the continent, Nigeria really needs to be at the center of our engagement. Well, on that cautiously optimistic note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this Africa edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Joshua Mazervi, Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation, and Oge Onobogu, Director of the West Africa Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on the Voice of America.